Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. So we're delighted uh, this morning to have Dr. Von Batavia um, with us. Um, Dr. Von Batavia and I go back to residency. I still remember um, the good old days of us working together. Um, he's phenomenal. Uh, he went on to pursue um, from Columbia Urology Residency. He went on to pursue a residency in pediatric urology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he was so great that they decided to keep him there uh, where he runs a clinical practice and also maintains a laboratory doing basic science research as it pertains to pediatric urology. So welcome, Dr. Von Batavia. Thank you for coming back to New York and giving us a talk. Well, thank you, Dr. Violetta. Gina, it's been, a, it's been a few years, but it's a pleasure obviously, to come back to the New York section, um, sort of my home, um, as I feel like it is, and uh, to reflect on those days. No, I think uh, you were one of the best resident educators that I, I had, um, senior resident, so I appreciate everything that you taught me. And well, You were very special, too. We, we, uh, we always enjoyed working together, that's for sure. Um, so the the beginning of the, before these talks, we always uh, ask if you could maybe give some advice to the trainees in our audience. So when did you discover you wanted to do pediatric urology and what type of advanced planning is involved in that because of the, um, you know, the dedicated fellowship match and the, the fewer number of programs that offer a fellowship in pediatric urology? It's a great question. So, um... I always was interested in pediatrics, and actually the reason I, I even got sort of turned into what pediatric urology was, was actually because of Sarah Lambert, who I know was one of your seniors as well, and she was uh, a chief resident when I was a medical student at Columbia, and my very first rotation as a third year, um, we sat down in a room with Dr. McKiernan, and uh, he sent me up to one of our satellite hospitals, and it was my first day. I was pretty nervous, and I remember getting um, off of the bus um, into this, this little satellite hospital, um, and having to page her and just being sort of terrified of, you know, what's this resident going to say? And she was just so friendly, um, so warm, just everything was teaching about her. And, and, you know, I just, you know, she took me on right away and uh, it was an awesome experience. And I don't know if, you know, necessarily just because it was such a great experience at the beginning that that sort of tainted every other rotation I had, but um, I sort of always kept it in my mind. And as I rotated, I thought I was going to do pediatric cardiology for a while, um, but I just like the surgical aspect of things. Um, so when I went into residency, I did sort of know that I wanted to do pediatrics. So I geared a lot of my research, um, even as a med student, um, in the pediatric field. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be. Um, there are you know, somewhere between 25 and 30 programs a year that match one or two uh, fellows. And so um, one of my colleagues, uh, Jennifer Ahn, who's great, um, she didn't decide till very late, actually, in her third year, um, maybe in her fourth year, actually, um, to go to PEDS, and she matched at a wonderful program. It was doing spectacular. So um, you don't need to decide right away. Um, if you can, obviously, it could, it could benefit and help you in terms of where you focus your research. But if you just do good research and you show um, sort of that you have that drive um, early on, it doesn't really matter what the research is necessarily. Uh, we've had residents um, come out of uh, different programs that rotate with us through CHOP who have decided fairly late, and they've all matched in great places. 
Yeah, so I think that's true. I mean, your experience with Dr. Lambert speaks to the importance of mentorship. I remember you were a convert. We, uh, we stole you away from cardiology, which was your intended career when you originally rotated in urology. What advice would you give like residents that may not have a children's hospital or may not have regular exposure to pediatric urology or even a mentor in pediatric urology who are not sure whether they're interested in that field? How could they get some exposure? What would you suggest? So, so one thing um, to do would be to um, you can read out, reach out to a to a place like CHOP. Um, we have outside observers come all the time, uh, especially med students, um, but residents as well. Um, when I was a resident um, in my third year, so my research year, I actually took a week. It was the week of my vacation, but I took it and I went down to CHOP and I actually rotated down there as a observer for an entire week, got to know the staff, got to see the cases. Um, you can't scrub in usually in those situations, but you can at least observe and, and see how the team uh, dynamics work and, and meet all the attendings, which is obviously a, a big plus, um, and ask questions and get involved. And then you can also get involved in research, even, um, even if you're not at that institution. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much. I don't want to delay the beginning of your talk any further, so um, I'll invite you to get started. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Gina. Um, so good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this uh, Tuesday morning here, post uh, Memorial Day. Hope everyone's had a good weekend and stayed safe. Um, it's a privilege to really be among these presenters of the Empire Series. It's a great lecture series put together. Um, so I want to thank the organizers um, for the opportunity to participate. Today, I'm going to talk about the evaluation and management of antenatal hydronephrosis. Um, Dr. Tony Kernan, for those who've been participating in the COVID lecture series, um, uh, we'll have seen that he gave a great talk on, on this topic as well. He presented a lot of the background information in which he was a part of these original studies. So um, it's great hearing from him, um, sort of how these studies developed and sort of the idea behind a lot of them. Um, so that, that's some of the background from that I'm gonna work off of. Um, but he looked at you know UTI risk and imaging as well. And so um, if you had a chance to see that one, I think it'll inform this presentation and we'll take it a little bit further in terms of how the criteria and the categories and classifications were, were established. I have no disclosures. So the objectives of the talk today are to um, learn about the grading of antenatal and postnatal urinary tract dilation and to describe it in uh, standardized terminology. We're also going to um, talk about the common etiologies for antenatal urinary tract dilation and understand the basic tenets of follow-up uh, for antenatal hydronephrosis, as well as recognize clinical situations that may require more urgent or immediate evaluation. So when Gina asked me to give this talk, I actually, she reminded me that I give, had given a talk um, back as a resident and she, when we were both there at Columbia. And so I went back and found that talk and this was one of the first slides um, that was part of that talk. Unfortunately, looking at that, that talk, about 50% of the slides were now incorrect, uh, which I think happens with a lot of talks that you probably gave during residency 10 years out. Um, another 25 were just outdated. Um, that's good and bad though, right? So that means that we have definitely improved. Um, and so my goal here and you know, sort of on the slide was I was complaining or musing about the lack of terminology, standardization, no consensus on grading systems, and then the higher sort of subjectivity and poor inter-rater reliability of antenatal hydronephrosis in the diagnoses. Um, and so my goal today is hopefully to show you that we've come uh, decently far from there, but we still have ways to go. So in terms of fetal imaging, the most commonly used fetal imaging obviously is antenatal ultrasound. And the increasing use of this over the last decades has led to um, really the field of perinatal urology and the recognition that over one to 3% of all pregnancies have um, antenatal hydrophrosis. And this is one of the most common birth defects. Now, some people 
calls prenatal hydronephrosis. I'm going to use antenatal hydronephrosis throughout this talk just to be consistent. Um, and you know, one note just to remember is that fetal MRI has also kind of been used more and more um, over the last uh, decades. And so this can be used in special situations where you're concerned about the anatomy and the anatomy and you really want to see detail um, of that. And perhaps if you're going to perform any sort of prenatal intervention. This is just a picture of uh, the kidney up here in a, in a fetal imaging. So you have a cross section um, and you can see that the renal parenchyma and you see a little bit of this black in the middle here, which is the collecting system. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit more about how that's created. Uh, on a prenatal ultrasound of the kidneys, you can characterize obviously the number, the size, location, if there's any duplications. You always wanna look at the renal parenchyma, look at the echogenicity, which is the, how white or bright it is, and then any dilation. We're gonna go through all this in more detail, so I'm not gonna spend too much time right now. It is important to remember that you'll see normal medullary pyramids. These are um, basically graying areas um, within the kidney itself. And so as a resident, I remember always being very confused, especially by this picture. It looks like there's hydronephrosis there, all these black areas, but that's actually just normal pyramids. And so the more kidneys that you see, the more obvious this will become. Prankle echogenicity, so one quick comment on that is that when we look at how bright the kidneys are, we always want to compare it to the spleen or the liver, depending on which side, um, and increase brightness if it's whiter than the liver or the spleen, then it suggests that there could be some renal disease to the kidney, but it can also be the fact, um, seen in premature kidneys. So always got to remember the gestational age of your patient. Um, renal cystic disease also can be seen in utero. Um, autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease are light, bright, or echogenic kidneys. Um, you actually can't see the cysts because they're so small in the ultrasound. Um, and in a multi-cystic dysplastic kidney has large, grossly non-communicating macrocysts, um, such as in this picture here. Um, other things on the ultrasound that you're looking at are the ureter and the bladder. Um, so as we talked, uh, if anyone listened to the embryology lecture from last week as part of the COVID series, the bladder itself will start to cycle around uh, 10 weeks. You'll see this in 50% of, of fetuses. And by 13 weeks, all fetuses, you should see the bladder. Um, the thickness of the bladder wall should really be three millimeters or less at this age. Um, you can also notice any cystic structures like your rear seal. Um, you can have dilation of the posterior urethra, the, the keyhole sign. Um, and then you also want to look around the kidney for any urinomas, which suggests sort of a, a pop-off mechanism, some obstruction that's going on. Um, here's a dilated torturous ureter and a fetal ultrasound. So you can see pretty good anatomy even on that ultrasound. Um, a dilated ureter or hydroureter is best seen in a cross-sectional uh, picture of the full bladder. And then an inability to see the bladder on repeat studies, especially after that 13-week period, is suggestive of bladder atrophy. Uh, a perirenal urinoma or collection around the, uh, the kidney would suggest that there's an obstructive process, as we said, and this can be seen with uh, severe uh, posterior valves or severe UPJ obstruction. So here's an image of a, a perirenal urinoma here. You can see it outlined in the red and then the, the parenchyma here, which is being squished by, that, by the urinoma. Um, Occasionally, if these get super large, um, I've only seen one in my, in my career so far that actually impinged on the lung and the lung development and so needed to be drained. So something just to, to remember, and these can be gigantic, these urinomas. Um, the other thing that we're looking at, obviously, on an ultrasound uh, prenatally is the amniotic fluid level. Um, so before 16 weeks, this is mostly the fluid is the placental transuent, but after that, it becomes more and more fetal urine. So by the end of the 20 to 22nd week, uh, gestational age, the vast majority of amniotic fluid is fetal urine. This is important for lung development. Lack of any amniotic fluid 
fetus is constantly drinking the amniotic fluid essentially and it's going into the lung system and that's letting it expand and the lungs to grow. So if there's any absence of any amniotic fluid or any fetal urine um, after that 20, 22 week period, then you can have a pulmonary hypoplasia. So how do we measure um, antenatal hydronephrosis? One of the most common ways and one of the first ways that was done was the anto anterior posterior diameter or the APD of the renal pelvis. Um, and it was noted in many studies that if a diameter of over five millimeters seemed to be correlated more with uh, adverse pathology and less than that seems to be within normal. There are differences in terms of what gestational age you're talking about. So we'll get into that a little bit more in detail and we go through some of the grading schemes. Um, again, this is about one to 3% and so with the advent of better and better technology in terms of ultrasounds, this got diagnosed more and more and you could res the resolution of the kidneys on the imaging got better and better. Um, so you could even see two millimeters now that you couldn't see before from dilation. Um, what's important to remember is that APD does have some issues with inter and even intra-observer reliability. It depends on where that transducer is and how you're cross-sectioning through the kidney, where you're drawing the line. So oftentimes if you get an imaging result um, just on a report, we always want to see the images ourselves as pediatric neurologists. It's one of those important things is to say, get all the imaging, make sure you look at it. Something that I was taught way back maybe by Dr. Benson, always look at your imaging. And so when you look at where they draw this line for the APD, just make sure it's in the correct spot, which should be sort of towards the end of the kidney, as you can see here, um, and in between parenchyma itself, not in the pelvis. Um, there was one study in 2011 that found that there was fair agreement here with APD classification. Um, but there are many limitations of APD itself. So you don't take into account the pale seals and any dilation there. It doesn't take into account any laterality. So if a bilateral um, dilation doesn't, isn't any higher or less on APD grading. Um, and APD as well as any of these, um, any of these classification systems can be affected by gestational age, hydration status of the mother and bladder distension. So something always to think about is how full the bladder was at the time of the imaging of the kidney. There's any discrepancy between one study and another study. Look at that bladder. Oh, the bladder was much more full this study. So maybe that's why we're seeing a little bit more dilation up top. Um, and as we'll show and then look uh, through some series, the risk of pathology does seem to increase with degree of dilation, except for uh, vesicle ureal reflux. So APD, I like to think of almost as like a PSA um, in terms of how we have to make a cutoff, right? So at some point you're gonna make a level and there's gonna be a trade-off between true positives and false positives. Um, in uh, 2018, Zhang et al. looked at five studies with over a oh, over 1,100 patients. Um, and they found that if you use a cutoff of 15 for an antenatal APD for predicting postnatal need for surgery, so the outcome there was surgery, this had a specificity of 0.81, sorry, sensitivity of 0.81, a specificity of 0.78, um, an odds ratio. So if you had an APD greater than 15 antenatally, your odds ratio of requiring surgery postnatal was 13 uh, compared to those with less than 15 millimeters. And the area under the curve here was 0.85, um, which is decent, um, as you know, from other ROC curves for PSA and prostate cancer. Um, so based on, on these findings and other studies, and you can see down here, these are the studies that were used to create this table, um, they made cutoffs for the APD diameter. So um, calling them different degrees of severity, mild, moderate, and severe. So in, again, it depends on the trimester. As that kidney is growing, as the fetus is growing, you can, um, you can have larger dilation of the system and not be as concerned. So for the second trimester, four to seven is considered mild. So less than four is normal um, in the moderate range is seven to 10 and greater than 10 would be severe. In the third trimester, we tend to use a 
a 10 or less um, for mild, 10 to 15 um, for, for moderate, and greater than 15 for severe. Now, severity here, this is actually the incidence of finding those. So mild is the majority, the vast majority of these cases, um, almost up to 80%, or in some series, even 88%. Moderate is somewhere in the quarter range, probably 25%, and then severe ranging from one to 13, depending on the series you're in. So again, progression. This is a, out of a, a meta-analysis that was done by Rich Lee from Boston Children's Hospital, published in 2006 um, in pediatrics. They looked at 17 studies and over 1,300 patients um, to try to find predictors of postnatal outcome based on uh, antenatal hydronephrosis. Here, they, they broke it down to five different um, degrees of severity for uh, APD. Um, but needless to say, in the mild group again here, it was about 12% 12, 12 had any sort of pathology. So this is looking at who eventually had a postnatal diagnosis. Um, so only 12% of those with mild dilation, 45% um, of those with moderate, and over 80% of those with severe. So as your dilation gets worse, your pathology, any pathology will increase. What's interesting is that UPJ as expected increases from 5% up to 55% in the severe cases. Um, same with uh, posterior urethral valve there, but for vesicular reflux, it remains sort of constant across the board. So four to 5% there to 10% at, at mild, moderate down to eight again percent at severe. So there was no correlation between VUR and um, degree of hydronephrosis. So what are the possible etiologies? Um, you saw them in that table there, but this was also uh, from a publication uh, in 2010 from the same group. Uh, actually, it was a collaboration, and it was from Society for Fetal Urology. It's uh, their first consensus statement. Um, and the majority of the cases in their uh, meta-analysis or their systemic review of papers from 1993 to 2009 found that, again, the vast majority were transient hydronephrosis, meaning that it would just either stay the same or go away on its own without having any underlying diagnosis or pathology. UPJ was the most common cause of any pathological diagnosis. This was in the 10 to 30% range, followed by vesicular ureal reflux. And then UPJ, UVJ obstruction or mega ureter was about 5% to 10. Um, Multicystic dysplastic kidneys in the 5% range, and then 2% or less for, for valves or urethral atresia, ureteral ectopic ureter, and so on down below. So we talked a little about majority of these cases being transient or spontaneous resolution. Um, and so one study um, in 2008 looked at children with uh, APD less than six milliliters in the second trimester or less than eight in the third and found that over 80% of them resolved spontaneously after birth. Um, in 1990, Ramsley, Phil Ramsley and, and his colleagues followed uh, patients with what seemed to be UPJ-like obstruction uh, hydronephrosis. Um, and they followed these patients if they had uh, a renal function that was at least 40%, split renal function 40% or more on that kidney. And they followed them conservatively um, by six years. Um, they had only operated on 23% of those, of those children. Um, and the average age at, at operation was actually three years. So a lot of them they could wait on. And what they found was that in any patient who had an APD that was less than 12 milliliters, none of them um, required surgical intervention. Uh, what we also have seen from studies is that if you have resolution or improvement of your antenatal hydronephrosis from the second to the third trimester, that's always a good sign. So that rarely is associated with any significant pathology, not 100% again, because if the mother is dehydrated at the time of the second study um, or other factors are in play, you may not see um, the dilation being as severe, but the majority of the time, if the improvement or resolution, especially over time um, during the gestation, um, is a good sign. Um, the opposite side of that coin, though, is that if there is increase in the degree of antenatal hydronephrosis between the second and third trimester, that does suggest there's a higher risk for postnatal urinary tract anomalies.
Um, and this is just a, a, a group of studies that all looked at uh, resolution rates of hydronephrosis um, based on a third trimester scan or after birth, depending on the different cutoffs here for APD. And you can see that even in cases where um, your APD was up to 10 milliliters, you had at least a 60% chance or so of resolution uh, postnatally. So here again, about 15 to 60%. Some of these are more severe than, um, than just less than four or five millimeters. Uh, it's important to remember, and this is a direct quote just out of Campbell Walsh-Ween, um, urology, you know, the, the Bible for urology, um, is that um, regardless of the degree or the severity of the finding, after any natal detection of urinary tract anomalies, a thorough field survey must be conducted. Now, oftentimes these ultrasounds are being done as anatomy scans, so you're having a full uh, fetal survey at the time, but always remember to, to think about any possible other um, factors or other um, other systems of the body being affected. Um, and if you're ever considering intervention um, or there's a major anomaly found and discovered, consider an amniocentesis and a karyotype, uh, which actually are pretty easily done now with this blood test. Um, in terms of field interest, I have a quick word on that. We're not going to talk too much on it because it's not done very commonly. But the overriding goal, and this is important and sort of an in-service alert, um, anything in red uh, during, the, during the talk, but um, when we do any sort of intervention um, because of urinary tract obstruction, uh, it is, we think, to help the kidneys, but really what it, we're trying to do is help the lungs um, because the majority of, of cases of urinary tract obstruction, what, um, what affects the kids and the morbidity and mortality postnatally is from pulmonary hypoplasia and underdevelopment of the lungs. Um, so, uh, the real main goal is really to help the lungs develop in these situations. Um, late oligohydraminose, so if this develops late, um, your, you know, your amniotic fluids drop later in pregnancy, that's always, it's a better sign because that usually means that the lungs have developed. Um, early oligo is, is a bad sign. Um, it could be devastating. It could lead to potters and other syndromes as well. Um, there is uncertainty if the bladder decompression actually helps renal outcomes. Um, and they have to obviously weigh the risk of early delivery and other complications. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. What are some options? So in the literature, the most commonly thing done is a vesicoamniotic shunt, usually for a posterior urethral valve or lower urinary tract obstruction um, in males. Um, and there have been studies looking at open fetal cystoscopy, um, cystoscopy um, fetal urethroscopy, even laser ablation um, in the fetus uh, with, uh, with small scopes. Um, one thing that has been proposed is looking at fetal urine samples after the 20-week period of gestation um, and finding that if the urine samples show a sodium less than 100, a chloride concentration less than 90, an osmolarity less than 200, and a protein beta 2 uh, macroglobulin was less than 6, these were all favorable um, signs that suggested that the kidneys were actually functioning at a decent level. So in those favorable situations would be the ones that you want to intervene. If these factors and these urine electrolytes are abnormal, then that suggests that the kidneys are already damaged beyond point repair. And so you might not want to intervene on those kidneys. Um, so whenever you're thinking about fetal intervention, it really should be done at a highly specialized center. Um, if there's evidence of severe oligohydraminose, dilated bladder, and severe hydrourinephrosis. Um, Vesicoamniotic shunts, again, there's in the literature between cases and series, over hundreds of cases that have been described. And again, the goal is to prevent the pulmonary insufficiency and death. But there are risks in terms of preterm labor, dislodgement, and bowel herniation. Um, the Pluto trial um, was a study that was published um, in the Lancet in 2013. And this was the percutaneous vesicoamniotic shunting versus conservative management for fetal lower urinary tract obstruction, a randomized trial. 
Um, so they tried to randomize um, in three sites. It was in the United Kingdom, Ireland, and the Netherlands. But they looked at trying to randomize patients to vesicoamniotic shunting versus not. Um, unfortunately, they had poor recruitment. Um, these patients tend to be obviously the most severe, so it's hard to, to find them, first of all, and then to recruit them into the study. Um, and they only had eventually 12 live births in each arm. There was a trend, the study was stopped, but there was a trend towards perhaps improved survival. It wasn't significant at that 28-day postnatal period in the shunt group. But overall, there was very low survival in both groups. Um, I think it said only about two patients in each group survived to the two-year period uh, with very high mortality from pulmonary hypoplasia. Um, and importantly, and remember to note, is that there was a, a much higher risk of pregnancy loss in the shunt group. So of the 14 fetuses in the shunt group, six um, of them had spontaneous rupture of membranes, shunt blockage, and dislodgement with uh, four pregnancy losses. So pretty significant morbidity and mortality there. Um, so not something that should be done without a specialized center and with specialized monitoring. Um, and again, it's unclear really what the benefits are of something at this point. It's nothing that being recommended just regularly. Um, so what is our role then as the pediatric urologist if we're not going to do interventions at this point? Our role really is in education and a counseling uh, for prospective parents. Prospective parents, when they're told their baby has hydronephrosis, a dilation of the kidney, are anxious. They're going to be worried. Uh, a lot of our terminology is very scary. Um, and so our job really is to provide reassurance, especially in those cases of mild and moderate um, hydronephrosis. Even the ones with severe, some of them can resolve spontaneously or improve or never need intervention. So we have to dispel the misconceptions. Um, even I always say in the worst case scenario, if a kidney is completely obstructed and lost by the end of the pregnancy, that kidney is going to be lost, but the baby will have a normal lifespan and normal in our future and be healthy. So, um, you know, unilateral cases like that, we have to provide for that reinsurance. Um, we want to provide them with a differential diagnosis. Um, I always draw pictures. I'm not a great artist, but I try to draw a picture of the kidney in the system. If you have just other images to show them, that can be helpful. Um, and you want to describe the natural history of the disease processes and to give them uh, any antenatal recommendation when they should get their nose ultrasound. Oftentimes they're already connected with maternal fetal medicine by the time they've reached us. Um, and then to provide a postnatal management plan, it's important this plan to print it out for them, give them a copy, give them a couple copies so they can have one that they put in their um, in their sort of uh, suitcase or their bag for the hospital so that when they go in, in case it's emergency to, to deliver, they'll have the plan there. They can give it to any provider who's taking care of them on what studies they need to be done, if they need to be on antibiotics, and so on. So postnatally, how do we evaluate these patients? Talk a lot about birth history, but it's really important. Uh, gestational age at birth, that's going to inform how we look at the ultrasounds, birth weight, and then you want to look at all the ultrasounds and get the reports for all the um, intrauterine uh, ultrasounds in terms of gestational age and what the findings were, the APD especially. Um, you want to find out how the baby's feeding, if they're bottle feeding or breastfed, how well they're taking it, how their weight gains been, urine output, especially in the last 48 hours, um, and then pattern of stooling. On exam, you're going to look for general appearance, hydration status. Um, on abdominal exam, you can occasionally, very rarely, but you could feel a mass if there's significant dilation. Um, you look at the GU system, and you also want to look at heart and lungs as well as the neurological system and look at the lower back for any possible sacral dimple. In terms of labs, we don't always get them, but if you do, it's really important. And this is another in-service alert to remember that um, the newborn creatinine is going to reflect the maternal creatinine, especially in that first week of life. So if you have an elevated creatinine um, in a newborn, don't worry too much yet, but um, definitely want to repeat it. Um, and then at one week, it should really be below less than 0.4. And remember also, this is important for, for the residents uh, who are listening, that creatinine in a newborn, really in, a, in an infant, should be less than 0.4, less than 0.2. So a 0.7 creatinine in a, in a three-week-old baby 
while normal in an adult is actually very abnormal in a, in a fetus or in a, in a newborn. So something to, uh, to take into account. Um, the um, imaging studies we'll talk about a little bit more and those are based really on the severity of the dilation. So brief history of grading of postnatal hydronephrosis. It used to be very subjective, mild, moderate, severe. Um, in 1978, um, Ellen Borgen out of the UCSD um, published a, a grading scheme of zero to three it was and found that the hydronephrosis grade was related to obstruction. Um, then 10 years later in 1988, the Society for Fetal Urology was founded um, really with the intention of standardizing the methods for grading ultrasounds um, and nucleotides are, or any radi um, radionuclide exams for uh, postnatal, uh, prenatal hydronephrosis. Um, and so they noted that um, the status of the case is very important, something you don't see in the APD. Um, and the size of the renal pelvis they thought was less important. Um, and there's an emphasis on the intrarenal portion um, of the system. And so this was then published in 1993 by the Society for Pedal Urology. Maxwell's had a big part in this um, in Chicago. Um, and so it was a five point grading scale, uh, zero being normal, um, see here on the right, um, there's no splitting of the, of the sinus there. Grade one, you have just barely splitting, so that little block there, um, splitting the renal, uh, the sinus there, normal calyxes though. Grade two has two different variations. One is a, an intrarenal pelvis um, that's dilated. The other is a, what looks like an extrarenal pelvis with the major calyxes dilated. Uh, we'll have a picture of what the major and the minor calyxes. It's important also for the next grading system we're gonna talk about which is the one that's most commonly used, but it's important just to understand the, SP, the SFU grading system because it is still used and you'll see it in lots of papers. Um, and it was one of the most more important ones um, over the last 20, 30 years. There's wide splitting of the uh, calyxes with grade three, as you can see in the bottom one with now minor calyxes also dilated, but your parenchyma, your renal tissue is preserved still in grade three. When you hit grade four, you have all the, the check marks of grade three, but now you have renal thinning, parenchymal thinning. So now it seems like there's some end-stage renal damage being done. This is from um, the SFU as well. Um, and so it's a little bit hard to see here, I apologize, but just the ultrasounds are what I wanted to focus on again. So this is intrarenal pelvis. And then you have here an extrarenal pelvis with some major calyceal dilation. Here you see up here and over on the side. And then down here, you start to get dilation out into the minor calyxes, put you into a grade three. And then now over here, you have thinning of this tissue of the parenchyma, thinning of the parenchyma there. Um, so what are the limitations though of the SFU uh, grading system? Um, there's no mention of the actual APD. Um, the ureter and the bladder status are not incorporated. So it's just looking at the pelvis, um, really the calyces and the tissue of the kidney itself. Um, and there's questionable intra-observer uh, agreement. Keyes and her colleagues um, in Canada in 2008 had a publication in the Journal of Urology that looked at um, inter and intra-observer agreement for the SFU grading system. And they found that it was moderate at the extreme, so people could figure grade one and grade zero out and even grade four, but in that middle range, two to threes, is where they had slight to fair um, intra-observer agreement, so quite variable. Um, intra, though, observer was pretty reliable. A more recent publication by Caleb Nelson um, from Boston Children's Hospital um, looked at um, this as well and found that there was only fair inter-observer agreement on the ultimate or final SFU grading uh, classification. Um, and intra-observer was, was only just moderate as well. So in this sort of landscape, um, we had lots of terminology. If you look in the literature, hydronephrosis, urinary tract dilation, um, calyectasis, calyectasis. And so 
um, it's a little bit hard to dissect through some of the some of the older papers, especially when there is no sort of standardized language. Um, and so in 2014, a really important paper um, came out, um, and this was a multidisciplinary collaboration between several societies. Um, and so it was the American College of Radiology, the American Society for Pediatric Nephrology, the Society for Fetal Urology, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, Society for Pediatric Urology, Society for Pediatric Radiology. So a lot of groups came together, uh, put their heads together, and came up with this multidisciplinary consensus. Um, this is the one that we use um, for the most part at CHOP, and one that I think is, is really helpful. And so their goal really was to provide a unified description of urinary tract dilation that can apply both pre and postnatally. Remember, the SFU is really only postnatal. Um, and to keep it simple, but detailed enough to be meaningful, um, to provide uh, information uh, transfer between specialists who care for these patients, these children. Um, and to, they recommended you know, consistent terminology. And so that was their first sort of recommendation was that they discouraged the use of nonspecific terms. Um, and they really wanted to focus on the term urinary tract dilation or UTD, which I'll refer to as UTD. Um, not to be confused with UDT, with undescended testicle. In physiology, we have lots of UTDs uh, in our acronyms. It's gonna be unfortunate. Um, but also to further uh, determine the severity of UTD is characterized by specific uh, ultrasound findings. And we'll go through those. Um, and that gives you uh, the classification system that we'll talk about. So things to look at for the classification system, the criteria, the APD was involved. So remember SFU didn't have APD and APD didn't have anything to do with calyces. So certainly it's a combination of APD now and the renal findings of the SFU with now bladder and ureter. Um, you're gonna look at parenchyal appearance, thickness, Calyceal dilation, ureters, are they normal or abnormal? Anytime you see a dilated ureter, for the most part, it's usually abnormal. Um, there can be some transient ureteral dilation, especially if you have a full bladder, and then if a patient voids, you might see the dilation go away. That's considered normal. Uh, bladder, abnormal versus normal, and we'll have some pictures of that. And then in the prenatal uh, images, oligo um, is uh, important to measure as well. So the ideal technique they also describe for measuring APD um, just to give you a standardization of this, so it's uh, an A anterior posterior image of either the fetus or the newborn or the patient after birth, um, and you want to have the spine visualized at the 12 or 6 o'clock position, and you want to measure at the maximum diameter of the intrarenal pelvis um, in the prone position. So here you see the maximum there, maximum there. So this is what I'm saying. Look at the images and just make sure they drew those lines in the correct spot. Sometimes you'll see a big extrarenal pelvis, and they'll draw that line on the extrarenal pelvis, and that's technically not correct. Um, so the specific criteria, again, we talked about APD. It's important here, again, to remember, and we'll talk about this during the, the classification system, but that these images should be taken if they're after birth, after 48 hours. In that first 24 to 48 hour period after birth, even in the first week sometimes, babies can be dehydrated. They're not feeding as well. As, uh, they're not latching on. They're not picking the bottle early on those first couple of days, even a week of life. And so you can have um, a dehydrated system. And so in a dehydration system, the kidneys won't be making as much urine. You may not see... Um, dilation that's there just because the system's not being stressed. So you can be falsely, um, you know, sort of reassured with a more normal looking ultrasound early on in that 48 hour window. So we tend to try to wait till after 48 hours. Uh, and normal again is less than 10. We'll talk about that in a second. Calyceal dilation. So central calyceal dilation is the major calyces being dilated and peripheral is now that you've moved out into the into the minor calyces. Um, it's important again to note the status of the bladder and that these are prone images. So here's just a good image of, of this. And some of these images I borrowed from our radiology department. So I just want to thank them, um, as well as one of my colleagues, Dr. Colin. Um, but this is just a great slide looking at you know, that central calyx. 
here, and then the peripheral or the minor calyx going out. So when you see central calyxes, you're talking about that major calyx. You don't see that going out into these minor calyxes, and then peripherals out into the to minor calyxes. Um, in terms of parenchymal thickness, it's a little bit subjective, obviously, but um, we term, term it either normal or abnormal. And then appearance, you're going to look for echogenicity. We talked about that already. Cortical medulla differentiation, uh, any cysts that could be present. And this is really just a binary. It's abnormal or normal in terms of the grading scheme. Um, ureteral abnormalities, so a dilated um, ureter, normal or abnormal. Bladder abnormalities in, in the bladder, we're looking for thickness of the bladder wall. Should be less than three millimeters really in prenatal uh, period and then three to five postnatally. Um, you can look for ureterocele, which is what's shown in this image, this thin um, round circle here, the ureterocele. Um, posterior urethral dilation, um, so-called keyhole sign can be seen sometimes as well in the bladder. And again, whatever the finding is here, it just counts as, as abnormal if you find anything. So the first thing they had to do is then they had to define in the consensus statement what normal was. And so again, it depends a little bit on your timing. So at that second trimester, less than four millimeters of the APD, they considered normal, and you had to have everything else normal. So parenchyma, calyceals, ureter, bladder, everything else would be normal. After 28 weeks in the third trimester, less than seven was considered normal. And then after birth, less than 10 millimeters considered normal. Everything else, again, being normal. Prenatally, um, they broke it down into two risk groups. Um, your low risk group is uh, the child, again, with either four to seven in the second trimester or seven to 10 millimeter dilation and just central calyxial dilation, but no peripheral. Um, at the, the higher risk, which is sort of a combination of moderate and, and severe, the A2 to three, a here stands for antenatal. Um, you have either greater than seven, greater than 10, depending on your timing, as well as any other peripheral dilation or kidney or bladder or your abnormality. Um, so what to do in those situations, they recommended that for those low risk groups, you get one additional ultrasound at some point after 32 weeks just to check progression. And then after birth, get one within that first month of life and then one somewhere between one and six months, depending on the findings. Uh, for the higher risk group, they recommended getting one another repeat antenatal imaging somewhere between four and six weeks after the one that you, you have, and then at birth to get one. Um, sometime after the 48-hour period within the first month, um, tend, we tend to get them a little bit sooner if they're you know, on the more severe A3 side, um, and then consult a urologist um, and specialist as well. Postnatally, and this is important, so this is what I think, uh, hopefully if you sort of zoning out a little bit, just listen to these next few slides. So this is um, should be our universal language. And so if you guys aren't using this um, in your programs, then you maybe ask, um, you know, your pediatrologist or, um, or whoever you're working with just to start using this terminology. I think it's really helpful for us just to sort of be able to communicate the type of patients that we're looking at. And so um, the UTD um, P1, so postnatal one, I like to think of um, these, it's a P1, two, and three scale. I start with, start with the pelvis um, and the central calyces. So here your diameter of the APD is in between uh, 10 and 15 but you're also, you can allow central calyxes. So really it's a pelvis dilation between 10 to 15, and then you have central calyx cysts. You're starting sort of in the center there. That's low risk. If now you've extended it into the peripheral calyxes, so one step higher towards the renal parenchyma or down into the ureters, you're now in a P2. So we start from the center. Now if we go one step in both directions, we're at a ureter or peripheral calyxes, and that's a P2, intermediate risk. And now if you go even further, so now if either you're 15 centimeter, uh, millimeters or greater, or you have parenchymal changes, so parenchymal thinness or echogenicity or any sort of cyst in the parenchyma that's abnormal, or now from the ureter, you go down to the bladder, that's a P3. So bladder abnormality, 
tissue parenchyma chemo abnormality of P3. So if you start source and center and work your way both directions, that gives you the scale of P1, P2, P3. And these are important. Um, you know, you'll read these on the imaging reports, but it's really important to look at the images yourself. Not all P2s, not all P3s are, are the same. Um, so this was the, the table, the final table in that um, consensus statement looking at what to do for these patients. Um, you know, these ranges sort of were, were wide, one to three for an ultrasound, um, no antibiotics, no VCG for those low grade P1s. The P2s, um, an ultrasound between one and three, and then discretion of, of your urologist for VCG or antibiotics. Um, and then for the more severe follow-up um, at one month um, with recommendations for VCG and antibiotics. Um, these recommendations are a little bit sort of on that, again, um, ambiguous scale. So I think a lot of institutions have sort of implemented their own protocols or pathways. Um, but again, if we talk at least about the P1, 2, 3 scale on that, on that level, it's better. Um, now, how well does this do compared to the SFU, that paper that we had mentioned a little earlier by Caleb Nelson from Boston Children's Hospital? Uh, what they did was they looked at seven readers, four radiologists, and three uh, urologists at four institutions. Um, they didn't have any standardized education or training across these institutions, and they looked at 243 neonatal ultrasounds at a mean age of about 28 days of birth. And they looked at the entire imaging sets, which is important. A lot of the studies previous to this had seen one or three images only for each kidney. It's a little bit easier to sort of try to diagnose um, something with just three images, but they here they looked at all of them. Um, and so they found that agreement on overall UTD risk was better than that for SFU. So it is a little bit better, but it still was only fair to moderate. Um, for most of the variables. Um, and the hardest ones really were bladder and the calcial dilation, which you'd expect calcial dilation um, to be one of the more difficult ones, a little more subjective. Um, and so this suggests that maybe there needs to be more educational tools um, to help. Um, in terms of um, how well this is disseminated across the usage, um, Susan and Pierce um, did a study actually more, about a month ago, came out in April of Journal of Pediatric Urology, and they tried to look at which um, sort of terminology and grading schemes were used in recent publications. They looked from May 2017 to May 2019 over a two-year period, looked at 197 manuscripts. Um, they found that 20% or more didn't actually characterize hydrogen first at all, so they didn't use any scheme, any grading scale. Uh, SFU grading was still used by 37%, so the majority that did use one used that. Um, APD measurements only were, were used in about 30% of publications, and then the UDT classification, which I would quote is probably the most the best one we have right now was only used in, in 5% of publications. So not used as commonly as we would have hoped for um, since publication came out in 2014. Um, but they recommend you know, better outreach and educational outreach to um, especially to other specialties. Not all these publications were pediatric urology, some of them are radiology um, and other um, maternal fetal medicine as well. So just sort of try to disseminate this information to, to others. Um, at CHOP, uh, we use um, UTD with a little bit of variation in terms of the follow-up uh, protocol, and this was developed um, by one of our fellows, Joan Coe, who's now in Los Angeles, and then one of my colleagues, Dr. Dana Weiss, who did a fantastic job putting together these, this pathway. Um, and so this is the website. Um, you can go to it. Anyone can access it and take a look at it. Um, the recommendations for pre no presentation in that low-risk group, if you're unilateral or bilateral, less than seven millimeters, um, they recommend getting an ultrasound. We recommend getting an ultrasound two to four weeks uh, postnatally, um, and then no antibiotics or VCG needed. If you're unilateral seven to 10 millimeters, so a little bit more increased risk there, um, we recommend ultrasound again at two weeks. Um, antibiotics is recommended here for the female or the uncircumcised male. I don't know that that's universally being done in a situation. I think if you ask my colleagues, you get a variation on when antibiotics are used in that situation, um, but they don't recommend uh, VCG yet. Um, for bilateral, um, 
they recommend getting an ultrasound in that first, you know, 40, after that first 48 hour period before discharge, um, just to see what is going on, especially in those bilateral cases. Uh, anytime there's bilateral, you're worried about a lower urinary tract obstruction valves, especially in the boys. Um, and consider antibiotics in those situations based on what your postnatal ultrasound uh, shows. For the higher risk, the A2 to 3, they recommend consulting the urology either um, while inpatient or um, even prenatally. Um, and for these, we recommend an ultrasound again at that right after that 48 hour window um, before discharge. We do recommend antibiotics at least until they follow up with urology. Um, and the use of BCG here is based on postnatal risk stratification. Postnatal, so if you had an ultrasound postnatally that shows P1 um, dilation, we recommend repeating that again uh, at three months of age uh, or three months after the original if it was done a little bit later. Uh, we don't recommend antibiotics or VCUG. For the P2s, um, broken down into two um, sections. One is for those with just peripheral um, calyxial dilation, either unilateral or bilateral. Uh, we do recommend an inpatient consult um, if available uh, for that or an expedited review and then repeat ultrasound within the first six to 12 weeks. Um, we do recommend antibiotics until we see them or until the VCG is done. It's not required, but it would be discretion depending on what we find on the ultrasounds if we consider to get a VCG, especially the dilation sort of wavers back and forth a little bit. Um, and then a MAG-3, um, if the dilation is in that category, you'd consider that to rule out UPJ. Um, whenever we're talking about MAG-3s, we do consider a, a functional MRI or an MRU, depending on if um, we're concerned about the anatomy, if there's any complexity to that. Um, and then if uh, you get a BMP, um, trend to creatinine, always, don't always get it, but it's recommended. Um, for ureteral abnormalities, this is where Jane changes a little bit. So if you just have a kidney dilation, you're worried more about an obstructive process up top. That's where you want to get the MAG-3 or your renal scan. If you have ureteral dilation, you're more worried about reflux or primary obstructing megaure. So for those, you want to think more about getting a BCG, and that's recommended in those patients with ureteral dilation. Again, starting on them on antibiotics and that ultrasound within six to 12 weeks. Um, and here, you'd only consider an MAG-3 depending on what the other imaging studies show you. For the higher risk, um, if you have parenchymal thinning, um, but a normal bladder and ureter, this is where you're really concerned about a UPJ obstruction, right? Because there's pelvis is dilated, the kidney is dilated, there's some thinning of the parenchyma, but the ureter is normal and the bladder is normal. Um, so we would repeat, repeating that, you know, getting an inpatient consult, um, repeating the ultrasound um, within the first six to 12 weeks, starting them on antibiotics, um, and then consider VCUG, but really want to get that MAG-3. Um, it's recommended to get it um, over four weeks of age after the 28-day period because of the kidney's concentrating ability and the hydration status of the infant. Um, for uh, bladders or ureters that are abnormal, um, this is where you want to get that uh, VCG, especially in a boy, um, you want to consider valves. So these are patients you definitely want to see inpatient. Um, you may want an immediate referral and possible transfer um, if they call you from outside hospital telling you about a kid with really thickened bladder, um, bilateral hydronephrosis, or severe on one side. Those are ones you want to consider transferring over to your institution. Um, repeating that, if everything is normal in that workout, you can repeat the old China about a month, but you're going to get a VCG. Consider getting a VAC3, depending on what the findings are. And those are the ones you definitely are going to want to get a, a creatinine on and trend it. Um, so the voiding uh, urethrogram or VCG, how do we get that? It's important to remember it's gravity filled. So you want to hold the contrast at about 25 to 30 centimeters of a bladder level and let it diffuse in with gravity. Um, you want to note the total volume infused and the timing of reflux, if any. So if reflux happens early on, usually has less um, spontaneous resolution than if it occurs very late or in, in voiding phase. 
Um, you want to get a view in those voids with a catheter removed, very important. Um, and then cyclic VCDs um, are more are better than just a single uh, a single VCD. So doing a couple of cycles while they're in there. Um, there's about a 15% false, false negative rate per cycle. Um, and so you can actually miss uh, reflux in up to 40, 50% in this one study here, even severe grade three, four, five reflux in, in a quarter of them. Um, at CHOP, we've been doing more contrast enhanced uh, voiding urosonography or CVIS. Um, and this is widely used actually more outside the United States than in the United States, but um, it's actually more sensitive to traditional VCUG. Um, and it avoids ionizing radiation. It takes a little getting used to. So in the initial um, initial go, it's hard sometimes because you don't get the images right away and it's hard to know which series to go through versus getting your VCG normally you can see right away when you're talking to the patient. So this does require someone calling down to the radiologist, going down there yourself and looking at the images with them, which can take time in a busy clinic. So, but again, it does avoid radiation. Um, and this is a, it's a micro bubble. Um, Opticin is what we use. And you can see here that it shows up right, um, right here. Um, indications um, in my practice really for VCG for antihydro are any P2s, so your UTD P2 with the ureteral dilation, uh, P3 with any ureteral bladder abnormality, you want to worry about ureteral seals, bladder obstructions, or refluxing megaureter. Um, if I have bilateral grade two um, or three in a male, I want to get them. Um, and then if there's any future febrile UTI, so if you decide to manage somebody conservatively and they get a febrile UTI and follow-up, then you want to consider getting a VCG in those patients. Um, the MAG3 LASIX renal scan um, is a well-tempered um, scan, has three key elements, hydration. So you want to make sure that um, the baby's hydrated. Some people start fluids beforehand, um, really make sure that you're getting the system um, to, to make urine. Um, bladder drainage is also key. So you want to make sure there's a urethral catheter and the drainage occurs. If you see the bladder just go straight up and it never drains again, then that's concerning that there was no urethral catheter. And so that can lead to false uh, positives. Timing of diuretic is also important. You want to make sure that the Lasix is given at peak renogram, so when the collecting system is maximally filled and dilated. Um, in here, you know, there's different cutoffs and different sort of people use different uh, criteria. Um, oftentimes, if the differential function is less than 40%, we get more worried. If it's greater than that, we don't uh, necessarily need to jump to do anything. Um, if it's less than 40%, we do tend to get more worried. Um, and the half-lives there are what's sort of traditionally been told on less than 15, 15, 20, and greater than 20. We don't tend to go by just a raw number there. We look at the curves themselves. And even if there's a down trend, but it takes longer than that 20-minute period, um, as long as it's coming down, we, we tend to observe them still. Um, so MR urogram, how is that helpful? Um, so this is a patient of mine that was two months old, had a history of antenatal postnatal urinary tract dilation, grade two, had ureteral dilation had a whole host of other syndromes, uh, cleft palatus, apert syndrome. And these are the uh, ultrasounds um, at around that two month age period. So there's some left upper urinary tract dilation there, maybe some peripheral calyces, definitely central calyceal dilation. Frank was intact though. Um, and here you see down below what it looked like there was bilateral, or sorry, a duplicated system. So almost like two ureters down here dilated. This is your bladder. And you see these two tubular structures there where the left ureter should be. Um, the VCG was negative um, at that time, and we kept him on prophylaxis. He was then admitted to the hospital with urosepsis, unfortunately, um, ended up recovering doing very well. Um, but because of that, we were concerned that possibly he had an ectopic or duplicate uh, system on that side. So we ended up getting a ma uh, MR urogram. Um, in the less than six month period, you can actually get these with um, a feed swaddle technique, so they don't even need anesthesia. Oftentimes, 
Um, older than that, you have to give anesthesia, but at, at CHOP, we've been doing these now with um, just feeding and then swaddling the babies and getting one with them without anesthesia or sedation, which is, which is really great and helpful. Um, but you can see here that the ureter dilated comes down and then it comes up again, and then it goes down into the, into the bladder in a normal location. So it actually was a, a normal orthopic ureter, just very torturous and dilated. Um, the, right here is your differential function. The padlock function here was pretty much similar between the two, a little higher on the left, probably you know, with an error, but 48 to 51%. So this is a patient we end up just watching. Um, he's now 17 months old. He's doing well. He's still on antibiotic prophylaxis, but he's had no additional UTIs. And this is a repeat ultrasound every six months. This is the most recent one a year after that other study. And you can see the ureal dilation here is, is much less than it was. So oftentimes um, these can get better um, over time. Uh, so I get MRU if I'm concerned again about abnormal uh, anatomy, um, especially in a topic or a duplicated system. A DMSA scan um, used less commonly. Um, it used to be used to rule out sort of multi-systemic plastic kidneys. We don't tend to do that anymore. Um, if you can't find a kidney, again, you wouldn't necessarily just get a renal uh, a DMSA scan. Um, usually you get in this if there's reflux, pyelonephritis, or you're concerned for scarring. Uh, one quick word on circumcision in the neonatal period. Um, it does protect against urinary tract infection in boys. This has been well studied. It reduces the risk of UTI, especially in that first year of life, by about tenfold. Um, here was a meta-analysis by Morris and Wiswell. Wiswell did one of the first studies in pediatrics um, um, on circumcision. And what you can see is looking at these 22 studies that the risk ratio for UTI in the uncircumcised boy was about 10 in that first year of life, even six, up to 16 years, and then even three greater than 16. Um, so, you know, in a patient who has very severe urinary tract dilation, I have a discussion with the family. You never say we're going to circumcise your child, but you recommend it based on these findings and on what the imaging and what the urinary tract dilation looks like. So ultimately a decision that's made by the parents. Um, antibiotic prophylaxis, um, and this was, um, you know, looked at extensively in Dr. Herndon's lecture. And so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but basically the key points here, these are two studies. Um, one, of the, one of his fellows, um, Rebecca Z, did some great papers with him, Dr. Herndon, and so in 2016, they looked at an FSU registry, and they found that there was, um, risk factors were female, um, gender, male, uncircumcised, and a higher grade of urinary tractulation than males with antenatal hydro for UTI at about 12 months of age. Um, then the paper out of uh, Canada, uh, Louis Braga in 2015, uh, looked at 334 patients with um, antenatal hydronephrosis. They looked at the SFU grade. 20% um, developed a febrile UTI at the age, mean age of four year, four months. And here the risk factors were again, female, uncircumcised, ureterodilation, reflux. So these are things to consider um, when or whether or not to start antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, so runes are reasonable, um, considered based on the report. So if there's a patient that you can't see the imaging and you have just a report and you're not sure, probably safer just to start it so you can see them in a couple of weeks or a month and then get a repeat imaging. Um, Females with UTD grade two or higher seem to be at higher risk, so those are the ones that I would consider it in. Um, and then uncircumcised males. Um, I tend to do it for most ureteral dilation unless it's very, very mild, um, but I've seen a couple cases where ureteral dilation and a prime regular have come back with uh, infection. Um, and then for bilateral systems, some people will use it routinely, and then VUR is a whole other talk that's gonna take an hour, so we won't get into that details. Um, specific diagnosis, as we talked a little bit again about this, UPJ um, is dilation of the renal pelvis often with calyxes without ureteral dilation. Um, and it does increase severity with the severity of the antenatal hydro. 
Um, there uh, is no evidence really for early intervention unless there's a giant urethral from a pop-off that's compressing the lungs or anything of that nature, but very, very rare. Um, you know, in, in neonates and uh, newborns, the most common is intrinsic obstruction. This is also a sort of in-service testable question. Um, probably has to do with the fact how the ureter is developing. It's the smooth muscle, we think, starts sort of in the mid-ureter and works its way both to the UPJ and the UVJ. So those are the two areas that tend to have the latest um, maturation of the smooth muscle. It can happen even after birth, up to 6 to 12 months after delivery. So these can tend to get better in partial um, systems. Um, what are the symptoms of UPD obstruction? Oftentimes none in, in an infant. Failure to thrive could be one, a mass. Some parents have reported sort of fussiness and I'm not sure if that's 100% related or not, but um, it's, it's something that you may see. In older kids, obviously it's more pain, uh, flank pain, hematuria, and infection. Indications here for, for intervention um, on one would be loss of function, a delayed curve that's just not coming down at all. Worsening urinary tractulation with now compromise of the renal parenchyma itself and thinning. Um, UTIs uh, or urosepsis in an obstructed system needs prompt intervention. Um, bilateral unequivocal substructed system. So if the curves are sort of coming down, but it's bilateral, we tend to be a little bit more worried in those bilateral cases. Um, only one third of UPD obstructions will require surgery, interestingly enough. And so we do observe a lot of these and a lot of them will get better, especially if the split function is greater than 40% and the drainage curve does come down a little bit. Um, an intervention is a dismembered pyeloplastic on part, whether open or robotic. Um, so this is a girl who had uh, two months of age, an hourglass that showed um, some parenchymal thinning there, so a P3 system. I got a MAG3 on her and it showed uh, in yellow here is the, so what blue is the right kidney and left uh, yellow is the left. And you can see that uh, once the kidney was drained here, the urine actually shot down and there's a decent drainage curve. Now it's probably over 20 minutes, but um, we still watch this because down here you can see that the split function was pretty even, 51-49. I repeated the ultrasounds at 6 and 12 months. We did not put on prophylaxis. Um, and this is her kidney at 12 months of age um, on that left side, so resolution. Um, running a little bit at a time, um, ureteral dilation and hydroureter, you want to consider these diagnoses, primary megaureter, ureter seal, reflux, bladder obstruction. We talked a lot about valves. Uh, Megaureters are pretty common. Those tend to also resolve uh, in the first six to 12 month period, so don't need immediate intervention. There are four types um, of megaureter, obstructing and non-refluxing, non-obstructing, refluxing, non-obstructing, non-refluxing, and then obstructing and refluxing. So um, ureter seals um, look like this. Again, that thin on a uh, BCG, you do see sort of like this uh, hypolucent area. It tends to be the ureter seal. They can actually go away with filling as it inverts. Um, well, this is the kidneys. Um, we talked uh, a little about this, but this is something you can find. These we tend to just observe over time. The majority of them will involute. Um, very rare to have um, significant reflux or hypertension later in life. So we tend not to just take these out. 30 years ago, they would just take out any MCBK. Now we tend to watch them and wait. And reflux, we won't get into too much, but um, there's another diagnosis to remember. Um, and then we talked again about posterior urethral valves. Um, again, think about it with thick walled bladder. This is the keyhole sign, it looks like a skeleton key. This is the dilated posterior urethral uh, here, and this is the bladder thick walled. So, in conclusion, um, urinary tract dilation system um, is used for antenatal postnatal hydrophobic a standardized platform to communicate. Uh, one, third, one to three percent of all pregnancies will have antenatal UTT, majority will resolve spontaneously or be transient. Um, follow up depends on the severity of the UTD risk classification with some personalization for individual as well. And any concern for valves, um, lower urine tract obstruction, bilateral upper tract obstruction, or urosepsis requires urgent evaluation. 
Um, so going back to that original slide, I think we've come a long way in, in 10 years. Um, I think we do have a standardized consensus now and that we're working on some of these other areas. So thank you. This is a picture from that slide. My family, like the UDT system, has grown <laughs> since then. And so this is, uh, this is the VB plan right now. Um, thank you guys all for listening. Um, if you have any questions, um, you can shoot a Twitter to me or uh, email. I'm more than happy to talk to you. Sorry, I know I went a little bit over.